All right. There are a few movies in my mind. Uh, you might disagree, and that's fine. Um, there are a few movies in my mind uh, where there are intros, the beginning of the movie, that hit that tear button in your soul like the intro to Up. You start, and it's got the music, right? It's got this cute little couple that falls in love. And all of a sudden, there's no words. I mean, we're talking about three minutes, and your heart is just torn apart in these few minutes as you watch this couple fall in love, get married, lose a child, and then fast forward, grow old together. And there's this beautiful reality of this marriage taking place as we meet this couple, Carl and Ellie. And you fast forward, and again, at the end of the, this little intro, you see that Ellie's health goes south. She's on the bed, and Carl's caring for, just like longing in some ways of, of, of those that are newly married, like where we want to be at the end of our marriage. And then she dies, and it hits this like within just a couple of minutes. The movie hadn't started yet. And in a couple of minutes, you're, you're just like, I'm crying. You know, you're just like filled with tears as you're watching this love separated. You can feel the sadness and the ache of it. It makes us uneasy. It makes us sad when we consider the reality of death. We long for a hero. We long for the day when there isn't any more death. We long for the day where someone could come and defeat the agony of evil and have the power, power to deal with the villain of death. And this Pixar film hits our longing for death to be dealt with. And in the text this morning, we find the only one who can actually deal with it. So in those few moments, we, in that intro, we, we experience some aches within our hearts. In John 11, we hear this story of this hero who has come. and John makes it quite clear, the beauty of what he offers to us. We're in this teaching series, uh, inviting our community to believe again. So we're just navigating through John 11. And in this section that we've been in, in John 6 through 11, We've been focusing on these I am statements. Throughout John 6 through 11, there's been multiple I am statements that we've heard about Jesus that teaches us a good bit about who he is and what his kingdom is about. And, and next week and the following few weeks, we're going to be starting Advent. And typically we, we pause in our teaching series is to focus on something specifically during Advent. And we will do that, but we're going to do that through John 12 and John 13. So we'll continue this series next week in our Advent series. But uh, we enter John 11 this morning. And in some ways, there's this transitional scene in the Gospel of John where we're transitioning from the first 10, 11 chapters that's focused on the ministry of Jesus. And we're about to enter 12 through 21, the latter half of this book. And it's going to focus on mere days. The first 11 chapters have been years. The last several chapters are days leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So this is a shift in the narrative, this shift in the gospel that's taking place. We're beginning to turn toward his death with an emphasis on his death and his resurrection in the following chapters. So we enter John 11, and there's four scenes I want us to consider as we go through this chapter together, this beautiful, healing, riveting chapter. And the first scene we see is 
Just some characters. We meet some characters in John 11. I'm going to read several verses to us. John 11, starting in verse 1, it says this. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus, of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then verse 11, fast forward a little bit, it says, After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to wake him up, or to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So we see this this text, we see a lot of movement, some interesting things here. We meet these siblings, there's this trio of siblings. We see Martha, Mary, Lazarus, and these have become dear friends of Jesus. We know a bit more about Mary and Martha than we do about Lazarus. Mary and Martha were depicted in Luke uh, 10, where you have that story of, of Martha serving and, and Mary at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus communicates to Martha, 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 you are troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen the good part. There's this story taking place there, but again, we meet Martha and Mary and now Lazarus, who is sick. Uh, they put this typically in ancient literature they, and, and beyond. You typically put birth order in, 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 in the sequence. And so you have Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So Lazarus would be seemingly the, the baby brother. And so the sisters inform Jesus about their dear friends, uh, about, about their brother to their dear friend Jesus. And they say he's, he's sick. And what's interesting is he was aware of that and he stayed back. And it's interesting because sometimes God does that in our life where we would assume that he would show up in ways that we thought that he would and he does things different and he's wiser than we are. And we can just bypass that here. But he knew exactly what he was doing and he was strategic and careful and all of that. And so there's this moment that's taking place. John is building this moment around this seventh sign We've had multiple signs that have been taking place in the first 11 chapters in uh, John, and the final one is in John chapter 11 in this text where we see what is about to happen is the seventh sign that's going to reveal some specific things about Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus initially says that Lazarus has fallen asleep, and obviously he is referring to death, um, and, and death, what he's implying here is that death has, like sleep, Death has a shelf life. Sleep has a shelf life. You wake up. Death has a shelf life. Death is our final enemy, yes, but it isn't our final chapter. So it'd be a two-day journey to Lazarus, and he stayed two more days. So he ends up staying four total days after Lazarus 
has died. And so the first scene is an introduction to the characters. The second scene is uh, Jesus providing hope to Martha. We pick that up in verse 18 of John 11. It says this, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brothers. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So the story continues, and Lazarus is now dead, and Jesus has been a few days, and now he's back on site with Lazarus and so and his family. And so in this moment that typically in, in first century Judaism, there was this job. It's kind of interesting. Uh, culturally, it was a, a norm for them where mourners would come to a moment of loss and grief. And they would mourn with those who were mourning. You would pay people to do this. This was an actual job. So we have Uber Eats you know, someone who brings us food. And for them, they had mourners, someone who would bring tears to your grief. And so people would come to these moments and they would cry and, and there were times where Jesus would even rebuke them for doing that. So some of this was genuine and some of this was just cultural norm. But the posture of Martha is identical again to what happened in, in Luke chapter 10. Again, if you recall that moment where Jesus challenges her to not just busy herself, but to make sure her heart is in a posture of receiving towards him. And so she comes to Jesus and he approaches Martha very different than he approaches Mary because the posture of Martha and her temperament were different than Mary. And so Jesus says, your, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha's like, yeah, 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 I know. And Jesus says, no, 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 for real, I am the resurrection and the life. This is loaded statements around the seventh sign about what's going to happen in mere moments. Each sign, again, re- reflecting and, and referring to the magnificent reality of Jesus' kingdom, saying that Jesus is, is saying that death will not have the last word, that, uh, but Martha misses the point within. And see, this is the es- essence of the gospel, this majestic story we're part of. You know, it's very easy to forget that we are in the middle of this real-time movie that's not complete. We know the end of it, and we're in the middle of it, this true myth that we've talked about before. See, this wonderful story is, is broken down into four movements. The first movement would be creation. The story of the Bible, as you open up to the beginning of Genesis, you find very quickly a good God who's creating beautiful things. Again, with beauty and intent, he's meticulous in how he crafts the world and puts the world so uniquely and beautifully together. And he creates this, these image bearers, 
These ones who are designed to reflect him and his creative abilities. And they're designed to walk with God and to be ones who cultivate and keep. We see this pinnacle of beauty and delight and creation. But the ark continues to the second phase where everything gets messed up and death enters. Why we feel the ache as we watch the intro to up is because of this, the fall, the second movement. The human rebellion to God fractured the beauty of creation and the design to dwell with God. God told Adam and Eve, you can have the beauty of this world and everything within it, but just not this one tree. You can enjoy all that I've made for you, but I want you to not have this tree. And he puts his character on the line there, and he wants them to trust his character that is good and for them. So the temptation in that moment in Genesis 3 wasn't that the apple was just so shiny, or they were just so famished and hungry and had nothing to do with that. The temptation isn't the fruit on the tree. The temptation is to doubt the goodness and character of God, that he's not going to follow through on what he said he's going to do. And in that space, that question, did God really say, as the serpent begins to chirp in their ear, did God really say that death would enter? Did God really say that you couldn't have this? And in that moment, when they rebelled against God in the second movement of the fall, we see everything shattered. I mean, you can imagine just with your ears if there was a large pane glass falling on a cement floor and just that sound, just shattering, going into a million pieces. In that moment when the fall took place and rebellion began, it was like everything that was beautiful shattered in a moment. Emotionally, we were shattered. Spiritually, shattered. Physically and relationally, shattered, spiritually shattered in that we are now separated from God, emotionally shattered in that we feel deep sorrow and loss in life, relationally shattered in how we feel enmity with our brothers and our sisters who are made in the image of God, physically shattered in the decay of life. And within the shatter, God makes a promise. Can creation fall? The third movement, which would be redemption, He promised right after that. If you haven't read Genesis 3 in a while, you should read it again. I invite you to read it again because right after the shatter that caused the world to fall apart in a million different ways, God makes a promise. He says, I'm going to bring forth one who's going to crush the serpent. He's going to come through the legacy and the lineage of Eve. That third arc movement is redemption. So creation, fall, redemption. That one would come who would crush the serpent. One would come who would deal with the curse of sin. Who would deal with the curse of death. And through his death, he would remove the curse. And through his resurrection, he would gain the power of death to conquer it and to regain its keys. So we have creation, we have fall, we have redemption. And finally, the story evokes longing within us that God would right every wrong. And that fourth movement is restoration, creation fall, redemption, and finally, restoration. See, the Christian view is after death comes resurrection. That is the Christian view. That is the way of Jesus, that through death comes resurrection. In the end, there will be a resurrection. New heavens, new earth, renewed earth. The way forward isn't death, but 
restoration. The way forward is resurrection and restoration. See, in the end, bad things happen, yeah, but God will bring out good in all of them. Justice will triumph. Love will finally be inseparable, and Christ will be king. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's not just throwing out words. Like he's creating a sign, and that sign's pointing to an act that he's about to do that's communicating that he will be the one, the only one, who can redeem and ultimately restore all things. He's saying he is the hero who will restore all things. And Jesus provides hope to Martha and then leads to the third scene, which is that Jesus provides comfort to Mary. Pick it up in verse 32. It says this of John 11. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So I don't know if you've you caught that. The same words that Martha used are the same words that Mary used in the statement that she made to, they made to Jesus. Martha was this no-nonsense type, and, and so she engaged Jesus in that way, and, and Mary was tender, and so Jesus engaged her in that way. And we see this emotion come out in Jesus that I hope we don't miss. Emotion that we haven't seen before. Twice in this section in John eleven thirty three, 33, and then John eleven thirty eight, 38, there are these words that are used that depict deeply, being deeply moved are greatly troubled. These words that the English translation actually doesn't do a good job in translating. Um, they're, not, they're softened in our translation. It's like a snorting of horses. I don't know if you've grown up with horses. I sure as heck didn't. But I did go to school outside of Lexington, and there was a place called Keeneland, which was like a trial run for the Kentucky Derby. So we'd go sometimes and, and bet a couple dollars because we were pretty crazy. And we'd uh, always lose. And these horses were just amazing. They were just majestic. Muscle like you've never seen before when it comes to animals like that. And you hear a, a horse snort in anger. There's something that causes you to come too. And that same language, that same moment when you feel that from a, a large animal like that is what is being articulated in Jesus' response in this moment. So what is Jesus angry over? In some ways it's feeling the consequences of the effects of sin, of the effects of the fall, of the effects of sickness and death. And he's angry and he's grieved and he's feeling this depth of sadness and anger. See, the God of the Bible revealed as Jesus is angered by the calamities and hardship of this world. And if that doesn't comfort you, I don't know what can. To know that God felt these things. There's something beautiful and profound about what Jesus said about hope that he communicated to Martha. 
there's something beautiful and profound about what Jesus articulates and emotes to Mary. Again, as Martin Luther taught, and I mentioned recently that suffering is unbearable if you aren't, aren't certain that God is for you and with you. And it's in this where we see the emotion of God on display that's profound for how we understand his care for us. And again, friends, secularism can't provide this. The magnitude that God can understand and empathize with our sorrow is unthinkably comforting as we navigate through life. We feel the gift of this and how Jesus reveals God to us. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation or imprint of his nature. He came like an angry father to take the head of someone who, who abused his child. You can imagine the anger of a father who is responding to uh, his child's abuse in the same way God comes with this anger and zeal to restore and redeem all things, this holy pursuit of God to res- rescue us. So this text doesn't end here. It goes on to say that Jesus wept. In these two words, we experience a unique picture into the heart of Jesus. He wept. The translation is that he shed tears, which includes lament before a calamity. He felt the pain. He lamented. Nicholas Walterstorff um, lamented the death of his beloved son and colors this in for us. He says, How is faith to endure, O God, when you allow all of this scraping and tearing on us? You've allowed rivers of blood to flow Mountains of suffering to pile up, sobs to become humanity's song, all without lifting a finger that we could see. You've allowed bonds of love beyond number to be painfully snapped. If you, if you have not abandoned us, explain yourself. He goes on to say, we strain to hear God in our sorrows, but instead of hearing an answer, we catch the sight of God himself, scraped and torn. Through our tears, we see the tears of God. Through the tears of God, we see the splendor of God. See, his silence in our pain is not a statement made. We wonder if he's abandoned us in those places of hardship and darkness. We wonder if he is with us. See, the heart of Jesus is exposed as he comes face to face with pain and face to face with sorrow. And then coming face to face with pain and face to face with sorrow, Jesus weeps. Do we know how much he has pained over the sorrow of sin? Do we know the depth of care he has to restore all things? Do we know the zeal of God to make right everything that's wrong? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Tim Keller says, when somebody says to me, I don't know that God cares about our suffering. I don't know that God cares about it at all. I say, yes, he does. They say, how do you know He says, well, I'll tell you something. If I was in any other religion, I wouldn't know what to say. But what I can say is the proof is he was willing to suffer himself. I don't know why he hasn't ended suffering and evil by now, but the fact that he was willing to be involved and he himself got involved is proof that he must have some good reason because he cares. He is not remote. See, it's texts like these that remind us that God is not aloof. He's not aloof to pain. He mourns over it, and he's zealous to wrong every right. 
So friends, this is not it. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. So we wait, knowing that we are in this movie, in the middle of this space and time, this story that God is writing, and restoration is not here yet. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. So yes, we, we grieve in all kinds of ways. But we're reminded of the scripture that in our grief, we have hope. We have hope, which leads us to the final scene that we pick up, which is this, Jesus raises the dead. He raises Lazarus, we'll pick up in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, that phrase again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And he had said these things. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And it's a crazy moment. It's a crazy moment. Again, Jesus deeply moved. Again, four days. A stone over the cave, very similar to Jesus' situation and his own death. A stench came out after four days. I'm not a mortician. I never want to be. Lord, help me. But that, that smell was probably pretty potent as, as, the, as the rock was removed. And he's wrapped like a mummy. You have to understand, like, when he comes out, he comes out waddling like a penguin. Like, his legs are wrapped all the way from toes to head as he comes out. The cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker argued that the denial of death dominates our culture. But even if he was right, the modern life has heightened this denial. It has always been with us. This desire to deny death. And in this text, we can't deny death. As the 16th century Protestant theologian John Calvin wrote, we undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. If we see a dead body, we may philosophize briefly about the fleeting nature of life, but the moment we turn away from the sight, the thought of our own perpetuity, I knew I was going to mess that word up, perpetuity remains fixed in our minds, which is this, it's like this, death is abstract. We, we don't take it on for ourselves. We don't embrace it in our own reality. But in this moment, we're reminded that death comes to all. And Jesus says this phrase, Lazarus, come out. And again, you can imagine him coming out, waddling like a penguin. And, and you have to ask the question, why the name? Why does he say Lazarus? And D.A. Carson says this. He says, though it is not John's point, many have remarked that the authority of Jesus is so great that had he not specified Lazarus, all the tombs would have given up their dead to the resurrection of life. So don't forget, friends, Jesus rose. And as the resurrection and the life, he, he has brought forth a new way of life. And he's bringing forth 
a declaration of hope and restoration. This is the seventh sign, the restoration of all things. The New City Catechism, the last question in the New City Catechism says this, what hope does everlasting life hold for us? It reminds us that this present fallen world is not all there is. Soon we will live with and enjoy God forever in the new city, in the new heaven and the new earth, where we will be fully and forever freed from all sin and will inhabit renewed resurrection bodies and a renewed, restored creation. And Jesus is reminding us of that in this sign, giving us a glimpse of his power, just as I rose Lazarus to life. There will be a day when I return and I will call forth all who believe to come to life, not just spiritually, but physically back to life. That is the hope we have. Tim Keller passed away earlier this year. I've mentioned that before. We'll mention it again May uh, of this year. And Tim passed away only a few years after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Uh, Shortly after, he published a book called Death. And uh, there's two quotes that I have just been chewing on that he shared in the final months of his life. The first is this. He said, if the resurrection is true, then everything's going to be all right. The weight of that, of someone who's at the doorstep of death, to come to the point of embracing the hope of God, that he is the resurrection and the life, to know that death is right before you. Man, what Jesus offers to us, that if, if the resurrection is true, oh, friends, everything's gonna be all right. And then his final words, his family says, he said this, he said, there is no downside for me leaving. His hospice is there and he's on the doorstep of, hell, uh, of, of death. Um, There is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. Yes, sad, yes, filled with grief, grief, but we are not like those who have no hope. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And so the same one who heard Jesus say this as a as a young pup John was he grew up and he followed Jesus after his death and his resurrection and he gave his life to serve the church of Ephesus and he uh, had Jesus's mother by his side all church history counts say as he took Jesus's mom on as his own and then at the end of his life he was put on this island called Patmos And he spent the last few years of his life in isolation because of following Jesus. That was his punishment. And at the very end of his letter that he wrote to these seven churches, he has this vision of this future hope, the culmination of Jesus being the resurrection and the life. And I'd love to read it to you in Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1. It says this, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe 
away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The same one who heard Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life, had this future vision of our future hope, where Jesus the King will come and call forth the dead to life, and we will dwell with God forever. Friends, we can feel the ache of lost love, surely. Death, yes, is agonizing, but friends, it does have a shelf life. Death is our final enemy, but isn't our final chapter, for Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so for some, maybe it's more along the lines of of Martha, feeling that reminder of hope, that comfort of hope. I am the resurrection and the life. There is surety to our future. There's surety, there's uncertainty of where our economy is going to be. There's uncertainty on who's going to be. I can't wait for election year next year. That's going to be a blast. Uh, there's there's a, a lot of uncertainty, okay? But there is certainty and surety of what is to come. I am the resurrection and life. And for some, find comfort in that. Yes, truly. And then for others, to remember the eyes of Jesus filled with tears. Some of you simply need to be reminded that God cares. God is not aloof. He might feel like a million miles away, but he is there with you. He has not abandoned you. Jesus was abandoned so that you will never be abandoned. Jesus wept, and we can find comfort and hope and peace in the eyes of Jesus that wept. And so this morning, we have hope we have comfort in this text for us, and we're invited to believe again. We're invited to believe in this one who came, who is God, and who will restore all things. That is the hope we have. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we oftentimes forget the story we're in, the story we're a part of, the work you are doing. We can be caught up in our own moment and circumstances and in some ways define our life and the arc of human history based off a circumstance that we might be in. And I pray you just pull us out, help us to see more fully you're the resurrection and the life. You are the great comfort. And you said you'd send another helper, one just like you who would comfort us in all things. Thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but you have supplied your spirit at work in our midst as the great counselor for us. And so for some who need to be reminded of hope, I pray that you'd remind us of hope, that you're at work and you're not finished and you're a restoring God in the near term and fully. And then for others, Lord, that just need to be reminded of your comfort and care and your active work in our lives. Help us to sense your presence and your nearness. You will never abandon. You will never betray. You will never break your covenants. You're faithful in your pursuit and care. You're filled with both power and kindness. You are the almighty one and you're caring. 
give you thanks. In Jesus' name.